listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. So glad that you're here with us this morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, that's the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. So you could also open up to like the Gospel of John and then just go one page to the left. That's another way to get there. However you get there, Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, that's where we'll be studying today. Well, today we're beginning a new series, as I mentioned, called The Risen Life. And in this series, what we're doing is we're taking six weeks to look at what Jesus did in the time after his resurrection and before his ascension. So we know from the Bible that Jesus, for 40 days after his resurrection, he was on the earth doing things. What did he do during that time? Why does it matter? That's what we're going to be studying about in this series called The Risen Life. And by doing this, what we're doing is we are actually participating in and celebrating a tradition that Christians have done for, for centuries, even, even millennia. This isn't just like something we came up with on our own. This is something that Christians have been doing for a very long time. It's called Eastertide. And Eastertide is the 50 days following Resurrection Sunday leading up to Pentecost, in which it's a 50-day celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Now, the reason we're doing this is because, guys, the resurrection of Jesus is such good news that it doesn't make sense to only celebrate it for one day every year and then kind of put it back in the drawer until next year. Am I right? For the next few Sundays, we're going to keep the party going, if you will. And you're going to notice here in the building every week, we're going to have kind of a, a celebratory theme. The balloons that you see around the building, we invite you, especially parents with kids, but anybody who wants one, take these with you as you go. Keep the party going with you as you go home from this place. We want there to be a spirit of celebration as we celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus and the new life that we have in him. And every Sunday, just like we do on Easter Sunday, we're going to begin our study with the Paschal or uh, resurrection greeting of, you know, he is risen. He is risen indeed. We're going to do that in just a minute. But the point is, we want to keep declaring it and keep celebrating it because he's still risen from the grave. But you know, the other reason we're doing this is because we want to learn about and study what it means for us to live in the power of the resurrection. The Bible tells us that to be a Christian is not just to know about the resurrection or not just to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, but the essence of the Christian life is actually to live in the power of Jesus' resurrection. Now, what does that mean practically? That's what we're going to be talking about in this series. And then, so we, we're doing this series for Eastertide. The next series we're going to do, we'll follow that same calendar. On the day of Pentecost, we're going to begin a new series called the Spirit-Filled Life. So these two series kind of go together. The Risen Life, and then starting on Pentecost, the Spirit-Filled Life. We're going to be talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I'm excited. I hope you guys are too. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious hope we have in you because you are risen indeed. And because of that, there is hope beyond the grave and there is hope that gives purpose to our lives today. Lord, thank you that we can live in the power of your resurrection. Help us to understand what that means and help us to walk in that today as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with this resurrection greeting. Jesus is risen. And you say? Let's do it again. Jesus is risen. 
I remember when I saw the movie for the first time, it was a movie about a middle-aged therapist. Who wouldn't want to watch a movie about a middle-aged therapist, am I right? A middle-aged therapist who has problems in his marriage. Fascinating, right? Well, listen, here's the movie. I watched it for the first time, I remember. And, and this middle-aged therapist having troubles in his marriage, he's trying to help a troubled young boy. This young boy had a problem, but the therapist, as I mentioned, he had problems of his own. At one point, one of his patients had broken into his house and attacked him in his home. And now, as I mentioned, his relationship with his wife was strained. She wasn't even speaking to him. In fact, she wouldn't even look at him when he was in the room. She wouldn't even acknowledge his presence when he was in the room. Well, anyway, this therapist, he begins meeting with this young boy to talk about the problem the boy was experiencing. The problem the boy had, he said, was that he was seeing ghosts. He said, I see dead people just walking around. Nobody else can see them except for me. And the therapist, he tried to help this boy manage these hallucinations that he seemed to be having. Now, I remember the first time I watched this movie when it first came out. Do any of you know what the movie is that I'm referring to? It's called The Sixth Sense, it's starring Bruce Willis and some boy whose name we don't know, right? And, and if, uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to just ruin the movie for you right now. So be prepared. And I don't even feel bad about it because it came out 20 years ago. And if you haven't seen it, that's on you, okay? You had plenty of chances. All right, you ready? Here's the, here's, here's the, the way I'm going to ruin the movie for you. At the end of the movie, you discover something that changes the way you see everything that happened in the movie prior to that. What you find out is that the therapist, Bruce Willis, he's actually been dead the entire time. I know, whoa, some of you guys are like, wait a second. You know, he's actually a ghost. Because remember, the little boy, he can see dead people. He can see ghosts. And you realize at the end of the movie that the main character has actually been dead the whole time. And when you realize that crucial detail about the main character, it changes everything. Little details in the movie that you saw, but you kind of ignored them or overlooked them because they seemed superfluous or unnecessary, suddenly you realize that that made a lot of sense, that it was actually really important. You see, for example, the reason the main character's wife won't talk to him is not because she doesn't love him. It's because she can't see him. He's dead. You, you realize that when that patient of his broke into the house at the beginning of the movie, he actually killed Bruce Willis at that point. He died. And I remember watching that movie for the first time, and when you realize this important piece of information that Bruce Willis is actually dead this entire time, you're like, wait a second. I need to now go back and watch this entire movie all over again. Knowing what I know now, I'm going to see it with completely different eyes. Things that before I saw and I thought, well, that's kind of weird, but whatever. Now I go back and I watch it. I'm like, oh, that's why that happened. Now it all makes sense. And so after watching the movie for the first time, spending like two hours of my life on that, you know what I did? I went back and watched it for another two hours. And this time it was like watching a completely different movie because I knew this piece of information, this crucial detail about the main character that made me watch the movie in a completely different way. Now listen, for those of you who haven't seen that movie, just think about this. I just saved you two hours. You still have to go watch it. You still have to go watch it, but now you'll know the crucial detail. 
See, the, one of the things you notice is that during the movie, the little boy's mother never looks at the therapist. But you notice that the second time around, you're like, oh, dang. And then the other thing you notice is that the therapist never meets with the boy in like a therapist's office, which is what you would expect, right? He always meets with him in like weird, random public places. And that one piece of information about the main character, it's the key which unlocks the meaning of the story. And in our study today of Luke chapter 24, you're going to see that the Bible works in a very similar way. There's a crucial detail about the main character. And once you see it, you have to go back and read the whole thing all over again. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, we read about how after Jesus' resurrection, he met with his disciples. And those disciples, they saw someone who had been dead, but was now alive. And as a result, they began to see everything else in a whole new way. The title of today's message is seeing Jesus anew. Seeing Jesus anew. And what we're going to see in this text is this, that truly seeing the risen Jesus unlocks the meaning of the Bible and unleashes God's power in our lives. Truly seeing the risen Jesus unlocks the meaning of the Bible, and it unlocks or unleashes God's power in our lives. That's our takeaway truth, our summary sentence. I'd love for you to write that down, take a picture of it, whatever you got to do to remember it and take it with you as you go today. But we're also going to use it as our outline for studying this passage. So let's break this down. First of all, truly seeing the risen Jesus. Well, listen, last Sunday, we read the passage in Luke chapter 24, where it says that Jesus, his disciples, they went to the tomb on the Sunday when he resurrected from the grave, and they discovered that Jesus wasn't there. The tomb was empty. But listen, that's not the end of the story, is it? If Jesus isn't in the tomb, then where is he? Let's find out. Look at verse 13. It says, that very day, Two of them, two of Jesus' disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Now, of course, Jesus knows. He just wants to get them talking. And they said to him, we were talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet but our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped, they say in verse 21, that he was the one who would redeem Israel. But alas, he was killed, and it's now been three days. However, some of the women from our group, they went to the tomb, and his body wasn't there. And they say that they saw an angel who said that Jesus was alive. And then some of the other disciples, they went there too to see if what the women said was true. And everything they found was just as the women had reported it. You see, for these disciples on the road to Emmaus, the resurrection of Jesus at this point it was still just a rumor, a fantastic, wonderful rumor, if it was true. And there was some evidence that it might be true, but they didn't yet fully believe it. They, they wanted to, but they weren't yet convinced. And so check out what Jesus says to them in verse 25. 
He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So as they're there walking down this road, Jesus begins to talk to them and remind them about the words of the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And the first thing he reminds them of is that according to the prophets, it was a necessity that the Messiah should suffer. You see, before Jesus was born, for thousands of years, there were prophecies that were given, which foretold that one day God was going to send a Savior into the world. But here's the thing. These prophecies, if you take them and look at them, they're kind of a mixed bag. They're a mixed bag for sure. Uh, and, and here's why. Most of the prophecies about this Savior, they talk about how he will be a glorious, triumphant ruler. And yet, there are also a substantial number of prophecies which describe how this Savior must suffer and even die. For example, Jesus might have reminded them of Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah told us that the coming Savior would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, that he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, but he would be smitten by God, not for himself, but for us. His wounds would be inflicted for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace would be laid upon him, and by his wounds we would be healed. Jesus might have reminded them of Isaiah chapter 50, where Isaiah foretold that this Savior, he would come and he would be obedient to God, and yet people would strike him on the back like with a whip. They would pluck out his beard and they would spit in his face. All things that happened during Jesus' resurrection or during Jesus' crucifixion. And yet, in spite of what the people would do to him, the Savior would set his face like a flint in order to complete his mission. Jesus might have reminded them of Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, where Daniel told us that the coming Savior, the Messiah, he would be cut off, meaning killed, but not for his own sake, but for our sakes. Or maybe he would remind them of Zechariah chapter 12, where Zechariah foretold that the Messiah would be pierced by the very people he came to save. You see, these prophecies that the Messiah would suffer and die as you might guess, they were not very popular. They were certainly a lot less popular than the other prophecies about how he would be a triumphant, glorious ruler and king. And so what the people did, it was very easy for them to kind of, to kind of ignore those prophecies about suffering and dying and to focus more on the prophecies about the, the Messiah as glorious, triumphant king. For the Jewish people also, these prophecies which talked about the Messiah suffering and dying, they were a source of great confusion. A source of great confusion. Here's why. Because if the coming Savior was supposed to be a triumphant king, how could he do that if he's rejected and killed? It doesn't make any sense. And yet there it was in black and white. They couldn't ignore it. And Jesus reminded these two disciples as they went along the road, he reminded them of the important and meaningful and numerous prophecies which stated that the Messiah would suffer and die. 
And then Jesus did something remarkable. Look at verse 27. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This must have been, without question, the greatest Bible study that's ever been taught in the history of Bible studies. And we're going to talk about it more in just a minute. But first, look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in with them to stay with them. This mysterious stranger who's been teaching them from the scriptures. They want more time with him. They don't want him to leave. And so they, they get him and they, they pull him in their house. And Jesus enters the house with them. And then look at verse 30. It says, when he was at the table with them, he broke the bread and blessed it and gave thanks and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now listen, why is it that they did not recognize Jesus at first, but then during this meal, suddenly they recognize him? Well, listen, these two men, they were close disciples of Jesus. They were intimately familiar with him. They would have recognized him if they had seen him. And yet there was something about Jesus' appearance after his resurrection that was different. Now, on the one hand, he was not a ghost. He looked and sounded and felt like a human. He broke bread with his hands. Later on in verses 41 through 43, we read about how Jesus ate a piece of fish. In verses 39 and 40, we read that Jesus invited his disciples to touch his body and feel him because as he said, a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he was not a ghost. And yet we're told at the end of verse 31 that Jesus, as he was in their house, suddenly he vanished from their sight. And then in verse 36, we read about how Jesus then appeared in the place where the other disciples were gathered behind locked doors. And he didn't knock on the door. He didn't ring the doorbell. He didn't use a key. He just entered into that place. So on the one hand, Jesus' body after his resurrection was human, it was physical. He had hands and feet and a voice. You could touch him. You could hug him. And yet his body was also different than it had been before, different than my body or your body. There are things that he could do now that he couldn't previously do. And Jesus' appearance was such that the disciples didn't recognize him until they did. And when they did, then they saw, oh, yes, it's him. Kind of like, it's kind of like this. If you've ever met a friend from your childhood whom you haven't seen in many years, and then you meet them, at first you might not recognize them. But then once you realize that it's them, then you suddenly, oh yeah, now I see it. I see, I recognize you. This is what happens to me all the time. I meet people from my past and they're like, oh, I remember when you had hair, you look different, right? It's kind of, kind of the same thing. Jesus has been gone for three days, but there's now something different about his appearance. Now, this is interesting because in his two letters to the Corinthians, in both of these letters, Paul the Apostle, he talks about how when we are resurrected, we will receive new bodies, and our resurrection bodies will be different than the bodies that we have now. He says there in 2 Corinthians, these corruptible bodies that we have will be put off and we will put on 
new, incorruptible bodies. And Jesus says, or Paul says that Jesus, he is the first fruits of those who have been raised from the dead to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is the prototype. He's model number one. And when we see him, we will be like him. In other words, Jesus' resurrection body tells us a lot about what our resurrection bodies will be like. They will be physical, you will be recognizable, and yet they will be different. They will be better. You will not be limited in the same way that your bodies are limiting you right now. And it was as Jesus was breaking the bread as he ate with these disciples that they suddenly recognized that it was him. Maybe it was because there at the table, they finally got a good look at him. Well, what I think, though, on the other hand, maybe it was because as he broke the bread, as he did that, and they sat there across from him, they were finally able to see that his hands were marked with the marks, the scars of nails that had been driven through his hands as he was crucified. The Gospel of John tells tells us that even in his resurrected body, Jesus still bore the scars from the nails that were placed in his hands. But you know what? There's one other part of this that we need to see. There may have also been a spiritual aspect to why they could not recognize him. It says in verse 16 that these two disciples were kept from recognizing him. And then in verse 31, it says that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So it seems that beyond just the normal, natural level of seeing and recognizing, there was also a spiritual aspect to why they couldn't see Jesus for who he was when they couldn't. The Bible says this about you and me. It says that in order for us to truly see Jesus for who he is, we need to have our eyes opened spiritually. You know, there are a lot of people when Jesus was alive who saw him. They saw Jesus, and yet they didn't see him for who he really was. In the same way, you know, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul the Apostle, he prays for them. And his prayer is that the eyes of their hearts would be opened, that they might see the incredible hope that they have in the gospel, the incredible riches, the eyes of their hearts. Now listen, I went to public school. I'm not a doctor, but I do know this. If I were to pull out your heart and set it here on the table and we were to examine it, you know what we'd find? There'd be some ventricles. There'd be some valves. But you know what there wouldn't be? There wouldn't be a set of eyeballs attached to it, right? There wouldn't be a set of eyeballs. So when Paul's talking about the eyes of your heart, he's talking about not, not physical eyes. He's talking about the ability to discern spiritual truths, spiritual things. So to truly see Jesus, it requires spiritual discernment. See, it's one thing to know about Jesus, but this is beyond just knowing the facts about who Jesus is and what he did. This means actually understanding in your heart of hearts what he did and what it meant and that it was for you. See, these two disciples, as they finally see Jesus for who he really is, this is a great picture of what needs to happen in all of our lives on a spiritual level. It's one thing to know about Jesus, but it's another thing when that information suddenly clicks in your heart and your eyes are opened and you go from knowing about Jesus to actually trusting in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. There are several places in the Bible where we are encouraged to look to Jesus. But again, how do you look to someone whom you can't see physically? 
Again, that means that this isn't just looking to him physically. It means to trust in him. That's what it means to look to him, to trust in him and to place your hope in him. And when you do that, when the eyes of your heart are opened and you truly see Jesus for who he is, when you begin to look to him and trust in him and hope in him, you know what it does? It does some pretty incredible things in your life. And this brings us back to our summary sentence. One of the things that happens when you truly see the risen Jesus is that it unlocks the meaning of the Bible. It unlocks the meaning of the Bible. As Jesus left those two disciples he had met on the road to Emmaus, it says in verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Friends, my greatest desire that is that when you would come here to Whitefields and you hear the Bible open, you see the Bible open, you hear it taught and explained, my desire is that that same thing would happen to you, that you would hear God speaking to you and that your hearts would burn with Within you. It says in verses 33 through 35 that these two disciples, they then left and they went back to Jerusalem and they went to the place where the other disciples were staying and they went and told them, Jesus appeared to us. We saw him. He really is risen from the dead. We met him. He ate with us. He broke the bread. We realized it was him. In verse 36, as they were talking in the place where the disciples are staying in Jerusalem, Jesus stood among themselves, stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And how did they feel when that happened? Were they excited? Were they happy? Did they feel peace? No. It says they were freaked out. They were panicked. As you can imagine, might happen. But then look at verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. Just as Jesus had explained the scriptures to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, now he opened the eyes of the other disciples to understand that everything that was written in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, was ultimately about him. You know, here at Whitefields, one of the things we love to do is to study the whole Bible, including the books of the Old Testament. Now, sometimes I've had people ask me, you know, Nick, why do we bother studying the Old Testament? I mean, shouldn't we focus rather on the New Testament, you know, since the New Testament is the part that's all about Jesus? And the answer to that question, I always tell them, is the reason we love to study the Old Testament is because, do you know what the Old Testament's about? It's all about Jesus. You see, I coordinated my outfit today to match. Can you, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to call it an outfit. My clothes, right? Okay, I coordinated my clothes to match the study today. And guys, if you want one of these shirts, they're available in our bookstore, go get one. Listen, let's celebrate this, that it is all about Jesus, the scriptures, and may our lives be all about him as well. But listen, as Jesus walked with his disciples, he took them through the Old Testament stories. He took them through the law of Moses, through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He took them through the Psalms and the historic books. He took them through the prophets and he explained to them how every story and every symbol ultimately pointed to him and foreshadowed what he was going to do in order to save us. You see, even though the disciples already knew what the Bible said, they didn't understand why it said those things. 
You see, they understood what it said about the sacrifices and the priests and the other things. They didn't know why God ordained the sacrifice to take place in the exact way that they were ordained to take place. They didn't understand why God gave the symbols. They understand that he gave them, but they didn't understand why he gave them and what they meant. And what Jesus helped them to understand is that the whole Bible is a story of how God has been working throughout history to save the world from sin and death through Jesus. You see, for the disciples, this was the ultimate aha moment. Like when you find out at the end of the sixth sense that Bruce Willis has been dead the entire time, suddenly it all makes sense and you want to go back and you want to read the whole thing all over again because knowing what you know now causes you to see everything in a whole new way. There are details that before didn't make any sense, but now they do. There are things which you previously overlooked because you thought they were unimportant details, but suddenly they make sense. Now you understand why they are there and what they're pointing to. A friend of mine, he puts it this way. He says, the Bible is like a math textbook that has all the answers written in the back, right? The Bible's like a math textbook, and you know what? You want to know all the answers? They're written in the back. Go find them. As Jesus walked his disciples through the Old Testament, he would have explained to them, and this is what you got on that sheet that was handed to you as you walked in. Jesus would have explained to them, walking through the Bible, and I want you to take that sheet, by the way. I want you to go, and this week, that'll be fun for you to explore those things and see how each of those there points to Jesus. But Jesus would have explained to them that he is the seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3, whose heel would be bruised. He is the blessing of Abraham to all the nations. Jesus would have explained to them how he is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, how he is the man who wrestled with Jacob. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was the voice from the burning bush. He is the Passover lamb. He is the prophet who is greater than Moses. He's the captain of the Lord's army who spoke to Joshua, and he is the ultimate kinsman redeemer who was talked about in the book of Ruth. He is the son of David who was a king greater than David. And he's the suffering savior of Psalm 22. He's the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He is the wisdom of the Proverbs. And he is the lover of the Song of Solomon. He is the savior described in the prophet, in the prophets who would be the suffering servant. He, and he is the princely Messiah of Daniel who would establish a kingdom that would never end. Friends, the Bible is an inexhaustible book. It is a bottomless well. You can study it for the rest of your lives and it will never cease to amaze you and it will never cease to feed and nourish your soul. It's simple enough for a child to understand it and it's so rich that it's studied in universities all over the world. In order to understand whole, fully who Jesus is and what God has done to save you, you need the Old Testament. But apart from Jesus, the Old Testament won't make any sense. In order to understand the Bible, you need to understand that the entire thing is all about Jesus. The whole thing is meant to show you that you have a problem and you need a savior, but God loves you so much that he has provided the savior you need. And that savior is him. 
God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He gave his life as the perfect sacrifice to pay the price for your sins and to redeem your soul. He came to cleanse you so that you could be reconciled to him and spend eternity with him. And what that requires from you is not only to see Jesus for who he is, but to look to him in faith, in the sense of trusting in him and placing your hope in him. And that brings us to the final part of this sentence that we're looking at today, and that's this. Truly seeing the risen Jesus, not only does it unlock the meaning of the Bible, but you know what else it does? It unleashes God's power in your life. Notice what Jesus tells his disciples at the end of this section. In verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in all the nations, in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The purpose of all this, of what Jesus had done, and this information he gave them, explaining to them in the scriptures all the things about himself, the purpose of it was not just to fill their minds with some cool information, give them an amazing study. No, the purpose of it was to equip them so they could go on and carry out God's calling on their lives. And in order to do that, God promised to give them his power in order to carry that out. And here's what's so interesting, and here's what we're going to be talking about in different ways for the next several weeks throughout this series. The Bible goes on to explain that to be a Christian doesn't just mean that you believe, that if you believe in Jesus, one day when you die, you will go to heaven. If that's all it was, that would be more than enough. But here's the good news. It's something even better than that. You see, not only will you have eternal life through Jesus when you die, but you can actually experience the risen life of Christ here and now. To be a Christian means that you have been, Paul tells us in Colossians, you've been rescued from the domain of darkness and you've been transferred into God's kingdom and his light. And so what that means is that spiritually you have already been resurrected to new life. That's what baptism is a symbol of. It's a symbol of spiritual resurrection to new life. You still have the same body of flesh, but something has happened in your spirit by which the old you has been put to death and you have become a new creation in Christ. Paul the Apostle, he puts it this way in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me put it this way. The Christian life is not just about believing that Jesus rose from the grave, but it's actually living in and experiencing the power of the resurrection in your life. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is now at work in us who believe. Friends, why do you need that power in your life? I'll tell you what, you need it for every practical thing in your life. 
Maybe you need God's power in order to overcome sin and temptation so that you can have victory over something that has been holding you down or keeping you back. Maybe you need God's power in your life in order to fulfill a calling that he has placed on your life in regard to your family or in regard to your work or something else that he's called you to do. Maybe you need God's power in order to walk with him or to transform some area or of your heart or of your life. Friends, I'll tell you this. You need God's power for every area of your life. And here's the incredible and wonderful thing. That God doesn't just tell us what to do. He actually gives us the power to do it. He doesn't just say, do this and, and do your best and let's see how it goes. No, no, no. He says, do this and rely upon me and I will give you my power and strength in order to do what I'm calling you to do. So how do you get that life-changing power of the resurrection in your life? It comes from looking to Jesus, trusting in him, and placing your hope in him. But looking to Jesus, that begins with seeing Jesus for who he truly is, the promised Savior. God come to save us by cleansing us and redeeming us. He is the Savior who we need to save us from our sins, and he did that by substituting himself for us, dying and resurrecting so that in him we might have new life. My prayer for you today is that you would see Jesus for who he truly is and that you would look to him for all that you need. Friends, tr truly seeing Jesus, the risen Jesus, it unlocks the meaning of the Bible and it unleashes God's power in our lives. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.